Hello and welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Today we're talking with Patricia Campbell, who's written a new book called Knowing Body, Moving Mind, Ritualizing and Learning at Two Buddhist Centers. Uh, Dr. Campbell's book is, I think, really interesting and really important. Uh, but personally, I have an interest in uh, a deep interest in both ritual studies and studies of Buddhism in North America. And so uh, her book covers both of these quite well. She's, she's looking at uh, two different meditation centers in the city of Toronto. Uh, these are Tibetan-based traditions that have attracted a large number of uh, Westerners or Buddhist sympathizers who are interested in Buddhist meditation practices. But they're also, uh, you, they're also doing ritual. They're doing ritual, Buddhist rituals, both meditation as ritual, but also other Buddhist rituals. And it's through the process of doing these rituals that they have some sort of learning and transformative experiences. And, and this, is, this is the subject that uh, uh, Dr. Campbell is interested in, in exploring. I think this is a, a wonderful book, and it really uh, sheds uh, an important ethnographic light on some, uh, some of the developments of Buddhism in North America. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Hello, Patricia. How are you today? It's fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to speak with us today about your book. Um, the book, of course, is Knowing Body, Moving Mind, Ritualizing at Two Buddhist Centers. Then um, the Buddhist centers in question, of course, are in the city of Toronto, um, which I believe is where you're at currently. Yes, I am. Um, so uh, to get our interview started, we usually like to um, start things off with uh, the sort of general question of, of how it is that you became interested in uh, uh, Buddhism in general or, or this particular topic. What, what was sort of the, the genesis behind coming to uh, write this book? Oh, well, there's a, a couple of different um, streams there. Uh, personally, I became interested in Buddhism uh, way back in about 94, um, just after my husband and I were married, he was very interested in Buddhism. And uh, I became curious because he was. Mm -hmm. We actually took a meditation course together. And I started reading more and more about Buddhism. And uh, I just really, it really impressed me, the philosophy, the, um, uh, the, the religious perspectives, the teachings of the Buddha. And um, at the time, shortly thereafter, I... Uh, I had been working in theater. I was originally a theater costumer, hmm. and uh, that that job was starting to go away on me. The, <laughs> the company that I worked for went under, and uh, there wasn't always a lot of work. So, you know, with the theater, when a show goes up, you're out of a job. So <laughs> right. I was kind of tired of being perennially unemployed, uh, and I thought I would go back to school. And I was very interested in taking a, a degree in religious studies, and I realized that I could study Buddhism, and particularly Buddhism in the West. And going back to school as a mature student was absolutely amazing. Um, it was it was so addictive. I just loved it. You know, I was able to put in a lot more effort <laughs> than I than I was originally as a student coming straight out of high school. So. Um, being as addictive as it was, I stuck with it right through to the PhD. Um, when it came to uh, time to write my dissertation, I had the very great opportunity and honor to work with Dr. Ronald Grimes, who is uh, a, really, a ritual studies scholar, sure, sure. Uh, own ritual studies scholar. He was so my dissertation supervisor. And so I thought, well, best thing to do was to study ritual, and uh, I've become absolutely fascinated with it since. 
I've uh, uh, added to my Western Buddhist studies the study of ritual. So it's kind of the method that I use and the topic is uh, Buddhist studies in North, in North America. So um, being from Toronto, I thought it would be best to do my ethnographic work at uh, centres in Toronto. And it was interesting because originally I thought I would have a broader uh, background that I would look at other t- other uh, traditions as well, Zen, um, as well as Tibetan. But the way it worked out, you need to narrow down when it comes to a study like this. So I narrowed it down to these two centers, both uh, westernized Tibetan-based centers. And uh, they, were, they were local and they were both had great um, education programs. So they really fit the kind of study that I wanted to do. Great. So uh, uh, that leads perfectly into my next question, actually. Um, the, the book is about these two different meditation centers. And so um, just uh, if you could give us a brief little uh, or, you know, uh, a little uh, uh, explanation of, of what these centers are and what their background is. And um, I, I know that you mentioned in the introduction that they've actually one that they've sort of they've, they've evolved since you wrote the book. So the, the book is sort of a snapshot of a particular uh, time. But. Um, what are these centers like, and, and, and what tradition are they in, and, and all that kind of background stuff? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, my my knowledge of them actually is kind of frozen in time, too, because mm-hmm. since leaving, uh, finishing my research and leaving them, I haven't been back. Uh, it's just been such a busy time uh, writing the dissertation and all of that. And, it, and the point was really to be a researcher uh, at the centers. So uh, what I've written in the book is what I know about them. Um, since then, I've had a little bit of contact, but not a lot. So they are both based in tradi- uh, Tibetan traditions. I believe um, the Friends of the Heart Center is uh, somewhat connected to the Kagyu t- uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, my pronunciation of Tibetan terms will not be terribly good, I'm afraid. Um, uh, Catherine Rathbun, who is the founder of Friends of the Heart, she studied in, uh, I believe it was Sikkim, with some Tibetan teachers. She lived in uh, New, uh, New Zealand for a little while, but she's Canadian, and she set up this center here. Um, started really, I think, when she was teaching a course on meditation, actually at York University here in Toronto, and she had some students who were interested in continuing to practice, and she started up a center. And Friends of the Heart has been going ever since, and it seems to be a very successful center. It's continuing on, even though, um, as a lot of Western centers, there's changes in membership, changes in leadership as well. Um, when I was there, I believe it's still in the same location. Uh, it's in a very small unit uh, in an industrial building um, right on one of Toronto's main streets, Young Street. Um, so it's a sort of a third floor to, to walk up to it. And it's a small little unit, but it's a very uh, colorful, delightful shrine room that they've set up there, a very welcoming space. And uh, they have almost everything. At the time that I was doing my research, almost all of the meetings that they had scheduled, regular weekly meetings, were set up as classes. So they were attracting people to come to learn meditation, to learn yoga, to learn um, at, at one time, they were having sort of an energy healing class that I think ended before my research did. Um, so all of their, their uh, members were essentially coming as students. And so some would come for a 10-week class and then, and then stop coming. Some would then take on a membership. 
But again, it would be continuing taking more and more classes. Even long-term members would be continuing to take classes. At the uh, Chandrakirti Center, this is another um, fairly long-term established center in, in Toronto. I think it started in the mid-90s as well as Friends of the Heart. Um, it is part of the New Kadamba tradition, which is a large international organization. Um, the center that uh, when I studied at it, it was sort of a renovated church. Hmm. Now it is much different. They, uh, during my research, they shut down the center and renovated it completely to become the NKT center and temple for North America, for Canada, I should say. Hmm. So it has become their headquarters. So it is an organization based on the teachings of Geshe Kelsen Gyatso, who is in England. Um, it is a not, not an uncontroversial organization, but the people I met and talked to at Chandrakirti Center really weren't involved in, in any of the sort of international goings-on that had happened since the 90s. Um, most of them were just there to practice individually, to learn Buddhist teachings. The teachers there were, um, it seemed to me, to be well-trained. They, they all had a sort of common uh, level of knowledge that would come out in their general program classes. Uh, the general program classes were on Tuesday nights, and they were much more open-ended. So you could come and drop in one night or another. You could come for as long as you wanted or sort of as, as little time as you wanted, and each night uh, was sort of an individual uh, occurrence, whereas at Friends of the Heart, they had 10-week classes that people would enroll in and stay until the end. So it's a slightly different setup. Um, it was interesting that the, the setup at Chandrakirti was was still very much like a like a church when I was there. There were pews and people sat in chairs and pews for meditation. At Friends of the Heart, most people were seated on cushions on the floor. So different styles of teaching as well at the, at the two. Hmm. So, uh, so, so the book, uh, as you mentioned earlier, is really about uh, the methodology uses ritual, um, which. Uh, is honestly probably the reason that I was attracted to your book. Um, <laughs> I did my own uh, dissertation research on rituals within uh, Buddhism in the uh, United States. Excellent. Um, so uh, let's 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 talk a bit about ritual. One of the things that uh, I was uh, happy to to read was that you uh, talk about meditation itself as a ritual, and that many people don't like to think of meditation as as a ritual, and that ritual has a bad rap. <laughs> oh yeah. Especially among Westerners. <laughs> um, many of the people I spoke to would, would say, oh, well, no, I don't participate in rituals. I don't like the rituals. Um, interesting that most of the people I was meeting and speaking to as well were, had enrolled at classes at Tibetan-based Buddhist centers, which are strongly ritualized. Mm. Uh, their, their settings, their, their practices, the prayers and chants and all of those things were there. Um, the offerings on the altars and uh, the, all the various uh, the, uh, statues on the shrines and that sort of thing. So the ritual was definitely there. It was quite clear, at least to me, who I'm used to seeing it. Um, but many people I spoke to said, no, no, I don't like the ritual. I'm not here for the ritual. I'm here to meditate. And so I thought that was fascinating because to me, if, if meditation isn't a ritual or at least isn't strongly ritualized, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> As of course, uh, ritual scholars have 
a very different way of looking at the term ritual than, say, we do in common usage, right? A lot of people use the term ritual to mean something um, repetitive, not necessarily very meaningful. So whereas I would use the word routine, Mm -hmm. some people use the word ritual. Where I would distinguish routine from ritual is when that repetitive activity starts to get more and more special or symbolic or meaningful, even spiritual. So again, it's not, as I say in the book, it's not, yes, it's ritual or no, it's not. It's not digital, Mm -hmm. as John Grimes puts it. It's not on or off. It's a, a continuum. So things become more and more ritualized. So when we say uh, it's my ritual to brush my teeth before going to bed at night, um, yes, okay, but it, it, to me that's a routine unless it becomes less instrumental and more meaningful. So you're doing something about that routine that has almost a magical component to it rather than just getting your teeth clean. So I do it this way because it's, it's special or because I become superstitious or something like that. It's a little more ritualized. Um, normally um, people who, who in, in common parlance, we don't seem to distinguish between rituals that are, um, as, as I put it, um, traditional, special, uh, uh, set aside, uh, elevated, or, or spiritual, or religious. In, in common parlance, we sort of lump them all together with more instrumental kinds of things we perform repetitively. So this is where I'm trying to separate what we mean, what we mean by routine and what we mean by ritual. So I call meditation a ritual because it not just because it is repetitive, not just because it's something we do over and over again, but because we do it in usually a special place. We use special postures and gestures. Sometimes we use special uh, ritual objects like incense and candles and bells and cushions and things that are set aside, especially for this, that they begin to uh, take on a special meaning. Uh, Sometimes for a lot of people it's a spiritual meaning or symbolic meaning. Um, And for some, some people would, of course, call it religious rather than strictly spiritual. So when these kinds of qualities begin to accumulate around a given behavior, then uh, we would call them more and more ritualized. I call meditation a ritual when it is a process of of, uh, perhaps including bows and prostrations, lighting a candle, sitting in a special traditional meditation posture, uh, going through a traditional meditation practice, and then afterwards finishing off with a bell. So from beginning to end, all of these things that are performed in meditation together make up a ritual. And so if I explain this to my interview participants, of course, I don't do that right when I first start talking to them because I, I want to get their own opinions about it. But if I start to explain this to them, why I call meditation a ritual, they, they think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, and they use a lot of words that are kind of circle around the word ritual. So one of my uh, uh, interview participants actually said something like, well, you know, I like to sit on a special stool and I light a candle and it's the, what is it? Um, it's the, the ceremony. <laughs> um, so uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, ceremony is um, uh, synonymous with ritual. I do distinguish them 
in my introduction there, but um, there are there are a lot of words that I think in common parlance we rather use than ritual. I think we have a, a, a an aversion to it because it does tend to mean meaningless, boring, empty routine. So I'm hoping that this uh, this book, this uh, my definitions of ritual, will sort of open up a better, <laughs> maybe give a, a better wrap. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you think accounts for that uh, that sort of uh, uh, disconnect that that folks, particularly the the folks in your study, have between uh, you know they're they're clearly doing ritual, but they also seem to like have a dis- aversion to ritual. What do you think accounts for that uh, that disconnect? <laughs> It's interesting that um, Catherine Rathbun actually gave a bit of a talk on this while I was doing my research at Friends of the Heart, and she said that a lot of people who come to Buddhism are coming because they're leaving behind a religious tradition that they no longer identify with, that they no longer affiliate with, Mm. and that one of the things that they didn't like about their earlier tradition was its emphasis on ritual, because the ritual had become uh, empty or meaningless for them. So there's that uh, possibility that a lot of people have come um, and they're they're thinking, no, I don't want to just replace my Catholicism, for example. I want something different. I'm looking for meditation. So it's easier to separate meditation, which is something new for most of these people, from, say, the uh, ritual, the procession, the Eucharist, for example, if that's what they're most familiar with in a Christian church. Um, but other, And some of them will say, you know, the lighting of the incense in the Buddhist center and all of these chants and all of the different words that are being used, because some of the chants are in Tibetan or Sanskrit, um, some of these things are way too much like the church I came from. Right? So it's too ritualized. They love the meditation. Now, that's a possibility that people don't like the idea of ritual because they've come from a highly ritualized religious background that they've, they've departed from. But there are a lot of people who come to Buddhism who um, are not from a particular uh, particular religious background. They're not from, they don't have a lot of ritual in their past, but they're still not happy with ritual. And I think that that comes mostly from uh, a general societal influence here in North America. We have very strong Protestant values in North America. It just come from back when, when, when North America was settled by Protestants coming here. And the, the, the un, a lot to do with the underlying Protestant value is anti-ritualism. One of the reasons why Protestantism started was a reaction against Catholic ritual. So I do think that that on a less conscious level, North Americans have this kind of aversion to ritual, and then it goes goes back to our Protestant roots. Uh, so there there are, there are many different ways. There's also you know you can look at individualism where people want to have their own agency and their their own control and and their own personal experience. So following a ritual is a lot lot less uh, individual. It, it kind of takes away one's own agency in, in the perception of, of some North Americans. So uh, there are a few different reasons, I think, why we tend to have a bit of aversion to uh, our, our typical understandings of ritual. 
So, so that the, the question of individual individualism and, and agency um, reminds me, oddly, <laughs> or maybe not oddly, of uh, performance theory. Actually, um, it, at the beginning, you mentioned you you had a theater background, and I immediately thought of performance theory because I know that's a part of uh, one way to, to talk about ritual is through the performance of it. And I think that oftentimes we see meditation as a very sort of individual. Uh, sometimes even solitary act, um, but you you talk a bit about performance too, and I think that uh, performance is sort of worth mentioning that that rituals are performed and even meditation is performed. Um, and in what way did you see that in in your in your study? Well, it is interesting because um, uh, performance performance theory does tend to uh, look especially at postures and gestures when it comes to um, studying ritual. So performance theory is a way of, in some cases, is a way of overcoming earlier ways of studying ritual that focus too much on text mm. and meaning and, and, and cognitive aspects of ritual. Performance theory likes to actually look at what people are doing. As, uh, as Ron Bruns used to say, he says, look where people are putting their hands and their feet and their backsides. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because that's important. The body is important. Even rituals that deny the body, said Ron Grimes, are still involving the body. The body is still involved. So it's very important in performance theory to look at what people are doing, what the physicality of the ritual is. So when we come to, uh, and, I, and, and I noticed this when I first started looking at performance theory and studying meditation, it's like, wow, these things don't seem to be compatible very much because, yes, there's a posture and we can study that, but once you get beyond just, okay, we're sitting in a lotus posture, we're holding our hands in this, in this way. What else is performative about this activity that is taking place very individually inside the meditator's mind and body? And um, it's, it's very still. It's, it doesn't seem to be performative. But it is in, in, in a lot of ways that there are things going on inside the meditator's experience. Uh, I, I, I like to say body-mind instead of just saying mind, um, that are performative in, uh, in the same way that postures and gestures and, and vocalizations, singing and chanting are performative in other kinds of rituals. So and it, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. It's because what one does in meditation is a received behavior that is taught, passed down through the generation. So it's a traditional sort of thing. There are many different techniques of meditation, of course, and they change over time. But we see them as spiritual and traditional. We learn them and we try to practice them the, quote, right way. And so we are performing them. Even though they're only happening inside our own experience, we are performing them and we become the witness to them. So there is a sense of performative action. Um, I call them mental acts. It's kind of a, a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> um, but the way in which these uh, concentration techniques are done is performative in some aspects. So we can see it again on the sliding scale. No, it isn't as performative as, uh, as a choir in a church. You know, not, you don't have a lot of witnesses. You're not uh, sharing it with everyone. It's not as communal. But again, if you talk to people who 
perform meditation uh, at a center with other people. There is a performative aspect in terms of audience and participation, that there's a shared energy, even though it's not something that is uh, seen or physical, there's a shared energy there. So um, it has its, its performative aspects. And again, uh, a sliding scale. Sure. So I try and look at uh, meditative concentration techniques as activities, activities that take place in the mind and the body. And that's why I see them as performative. <laughs> I, personally, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it certainly can be argued, but um, it's, it's, it's a way of using performance theory, which I find very helpful for studying ritual and applying it to meditation to um, show even further the, the links between ritual and meditation practice. Um, uh, so, so apart from from ritual, though, uh, the the book and and this is the other I think uh, exciting and important part of the book is that it's you know the, the sub it's in the subtitle it's ritualizing and learning at two Buddhist centers, um, and I I very much like the way that you connect the the sort of performative aspects of ritual to uh, to to how practitioners actually learn um, the sort of the embodied learning that you talk about. Um, uh, learning about Buddhism uh, in a non-cognitive sort of way. Um, and so you spend some time talking about different uh, styles of learning and whatnot. And so um, if, you, if you could just sort of, how, how does ritual turn into learning, I guess is the, the, the big question. <laughs> yeah. This was an interesting uh, finding for me because as a, as a ritual scholar, as a scholar of religion, I hadn't really gone, uh, gotten much into learning theory. I started off with uh, an interest in these introductory meditation classes and, and how uh, newcomers to Buddhism are learning about Buddhism. And I was very interested, of course, as a ritual scholar to find out how ritual plays into that. So how do we learn? So I knew I had in my head that there was a physicality to the way that we learn through performance, right? And of course, I cite uh, Theodore Jennings' article on ritual knowledge as a kind of stepping off point for the book. He argues that one learns through ritual, through the performance, the physical performance of the activity in the ritual. And I thought that that, that was a great way to start. And I started talking to people and asking them about what they were learning and how they were learning and how meditation postures played into the learning, how the meditation techniques, the concentration techniques played into the learning. And it was fascinating to me that my interview participants were were distinguishing between what they were learning cognitively and what they were learning physically. But the most interesting was the ways, the, the number of people that compared the learning through meditation techniques to physical learning. So it's not concentrating on your breath, concentrating on a mudra or doing vipassana meditation is not a means of learning cognitively. It's not a way of gaining new information or analysis or understanding. It's like a physical activity. It's like training the mind to a skill. Now, this isn't unusual. We know that the mind can be trained like this. But the interesting thing for me was the, the ways in which the ritual qualities of those concentration practices played into how that learning plays out in their experience. So I thought, okay, we're talking a lot about learning. I need to know more about learning theory. And when I 
came across Bloom's taxonomy, which of course is familiar to a lot of people, especially educators, um, I realized that what I was seeing was a link between, well, uh, first of all, the distinction that, that Bloom and his colleagues made between cognitive learning, effective learning, and psychomotor learning was certainly there in my interview uh, participants' discussions. And what I realized was that even the mental activities, the concentration activities, yes, they, they were developing a skill, so that it was something like psychomotor learning. But because they were ritualized, meaning because they were traditional and special and set aside and elevated and possibly spiritual, they then again, they linked to effective change. So changes in their um, feelings, emotions, behaviors, even in their values. So that's what I found so interesting in what the people were telling me about what and how they learned through meditation, ritual, through, and, and, and I talk about some of the other rituals like prostrations and chanting and things like that as well. Um, but the, it just, I just found it so fascinating to find that uh, this, this, first of all, that meditation activities, meditation concentration techniques were being identified as a kind of a skill generating or a psychomotor, psychomotor type of learning. And then the ways in which that linked to effective learning, so changes in emotions and values. It was it was fascinating to me. So, so it's almost like the rituals are, are sort of training, uh, training Buddhists almost, right? They're sort of training people to think differently about themselves and, and their relationship to the sort of learning about Buddhism from a, from a different way, not um, through books or through lectures or, or all that kind of thing, but through physical activity. Yeah. Yeah, so, and of course, they did learn cognitively as well. There were lectures and there were books for them to read and all kinds of different things like that. So um, I realized that their cognitive learning, the, the, the cognitive learning that they were getting was also feeding back into their uh, emotional learning to, to how, um, how their motivations for continuing to practice. So it all sort of fed one into the other. There were links between all of these three uh, uh, domains of learning that, that Bloom and his colleagues had identified way back when in, in this influential learning theory. So uh, it, was, it was really interesting to see it broken down that way and to explore using Bloom's taxonomy, uh, the sorts of things that people were saying. And yes, it did all sort of fit in there with the exception of Buddhist insight, which seemed to be something people were separating from more ordinary or everyday. And it's very difficult to write about Buddhist insight. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an ineffable experience. People were trying to describe it to me, and I try to describe it in the book. And it's not something you can really analytically hang your hat on, I guess was what I'm trying to say. But it's, it's there. People talk about it. They claim to have had experiences and that this is part of their process of learning about Buddhism, too. So I try and identify that as a potential fourth domain in their, in their experience. All right. You have that nice uh, – uh, one of your participants describes a sort of Mobius strip kind of uh, uh, metaphor, and I, I, I appreciated that um, in, in the different domains of learning. Um, if you, you know better than I, so perhaps you could uh, <laughs> explain how the Mobius, uh, Mobius strip works. <laughs> uh, from what I understand, a Mobius strip, and, and I think I remember years ago my uncle did this for me. He, he took a piece of paper and, and twisted it in a certain way and, and taped the two ends together. 
And you can start at one end with a pen and draw all the way around and you've come back to the beginning and, and you've covered both sides of the paper. So it, it's, it's, it's a symbol for infinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, and it's always sort of cycling back to where you started from. So when I started visually uh, trying to analyze what it was people were saying between these three domains, the, 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 the cognitive, affective, and psychomotor, I started visualizing this cycle back and forth between all of these three domains. So each one contributes to the other, helps motivate people to continue their practice and their learning, and uh, so cycles back again. And I realized that um, what Gerald had said there about the Mobius strip was it was a very good way of visualizing the links between the learning domains. Now, when people spoke about Buddhist insights, that seemed to be something qualitatively different. That's a way of breaking away from our ordinary, you know, Buddhism talks about this a lot, about the, the enlightenment experience going beyond transcending ordinary consciousness. And so when they spoke about this, I I used the term insights as a potential fourth domain. But this is, uh, it seems to me to be something that people are trying to break away from. So not included in that Mobius strip, although certainly insight experiences would probably feed back into their practice as well. I think if if there were a way of representing it three-dimensionally, it would probably be easier. That is more like a spiral. So we're back and forth, but we're moving on uh, as each of these uh, experiences changes with the the learning experience over time. So uh, one of the things I I found really uh, interesting about the book is you you sort of begin with these, uh, uh, I think you call them discovery stories, the stories of, of how folks came to... Uh, these different centers um, and discovered Buddhism. And then toward the end of the book, you talk about um, uh, sort of the, the changes that some folks went through over time. Um, and, and I think this speaks to this issue of learning and, and, and the, the, the changes in, in uh, the Mobius strip and, <laughs> and so on. Um, but it seems to me as, this, as if uh, there's a sort of a progression that some of the folks went through um, in their learning about Buddhism that uh, really changed how they understood themselves and understood their, their relationship to practice, um, which I find really helpful to rather than, in, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is it seems as if rather than like one snapshot, there's sort of a, a couple of different snapshots of, of people sort of along the path um, progressing, um, if, if you could uh reflect on that and and do you see people having change over time and and, and their uh their practice yeah well definitely i mean of course you know when we define learning as change um yes there's going to be a, a progression and um the the reason this came about the way i structured the book this way was that i really wanted to write it like a narrative of their experiences it was kind of hard to do being a, a, a dissertation being academic having 24 different interview participants. So I couldn't follow everybody's stories entirely, and I had to depart to do the um, analysis sections and the, the, the ethnographic description sections. But I wanted to get a sense, that the, the, I wanted readers to get a sense that there was this sort of progression, that there would be a number of participants whom they might recognize as they read the book and see where they started, where they ended, 
And uh, because it was a short-term, well, fairly short-term project, it was only about a, a year or so that I was doing the uh, interviews, um, I, I took a step in, in the last chapter by comparing more experienced members to newcomers. But I also had the opportunity to interview some of the newcomers a second time a few months down the road, and that helped me with um, trying to uh, develop that narrative, so letting the readers know what had changed from their first interview to their second interview, those who were available for a second interview. But when it comes to those what I call discovery stories, that is one of the things I find very interesting about uh, people who come to Buddhism. Um, Western sympathizers, I guess, is, is one way of calling them. I don't like calling them converts. I know it's sort of the the academic term, but it's um, it seems to me kind of uh, inaccurate in a lot of cases. So Western sympathizers, I sometimes call them adoptive Buddhists. Um, I, I find their discovery stories fascinating. Why is it that they've come to Buddhism? What was it that interested them? What was their first point of contact? What was it that motivated them to get out of the house and go to a Buddhist center and sit on the floor in these weird positions and, and this sort of thing? So um, it, it's just, it's fascinating to me. So it, it, it seemed to me um, impossible to tell their story without telling their Again, we might call it conversion stories. I'd rather call them discovery stories. Well, how how it was they came to be interested in Buddhism, how it was they came to practice. So I think that's a great place to start. It's just sitting down and talking to. Them. I love an ethnographic interviewing because sitting down and talking to people about what what interests you so much. They just they're 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 fabulous. They love to tell these stories. They love to, and I think part of it is because a lot of people in their lives don't understand why they made this choice. So to be able to sit down with somebody and explain it and actually walk through their experiences and have someone uh, who's interested ask some questions about their experiences, I think they really appreciate that. I think that's one of the side benefits to the participants in these kinds of studies, that they can tell their stories. And I hope, um, despite the academic nature of the book, I hope that I've managed to... <laughs> include enough of a narrative that uh, some of their stories could be followed. I, I, I think you did. <laughs> um, if you, if, if you want to um, share any of those insights uh, now, I mean, it did seem as though a few of the folks, you know, had recognized that uh, Buddhism had had their, their practice and their, their ritualizing even had had a pretty profound impact on, uh, on their, on their practice and, and their relationship to the world. Hmm. Yeah, and um, Gerald was a great example of this. He um, he came to this uh, very sort of intellectually interested. He was really looking for almost a night course, something to do to get out of the house and, uh, uh, one night a week. And um, I think very quickly, although in our first interview he really didn't use the word spiritual, later he did. Hmm. Uh, I think very quickly it became a spiritual experience for him. And when I spoke to him months later, he had remembered the question I asked him near the end of our first interview. I asked him, are you a Buddhist? And he said, no, I think I'm more of a tourist. Hmm. And uh, in our second interview, he was anticipating that question again. And one of the reasons why he said yes 
in a second interview that, yes, he considered himself to be a Buddhist, was that he had been asked to participate in a, a kind of a ritual activity at the center. Even though originally when he came to it, he looked at all these strange little figures on the altars and the offerings, and he thought, ooh, I'm not so sure about all of that. What's that all about? He was very wary and skeptical about the ritual. But someone came to him and said, listen, we need someone to come and change the offerings, the water offerings on the shrines uh, once a week on Tuesday afternoons. Would you come? And he kind of felt honored that he was being asked. So he said, okay, sure, whatever. It's a little out of my comfort zone, but I'll do it. And as he did it, even though he didn't really understand it cognitively, he didn't ask a lot of questions. All he was told was how to do it and what to do. He started to develop um, what he called a very intimate experience with the ritual, but also with the center itself and the people who were there and the Buddhist teachings that underlay all of, all of it that he was doing. And he said that it was just through the hands and the body, through doing this ritual, that he started to feel much more connected to the center he felt, started to feel much more like he was uh, like he was a Buddhist. And I thought that was fascinating. So I was sitting there listening to him while I was interviewing him. I was like, this guy's writing my dissertation for me. This is fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, was, he was, it was such an experience. And it was interesting to compare that to other people who said, yeah, I don't know about the rituals. I want to know why we're doing them first. Mm. See, Gerald didn't. He didn't ask why. Why? What's all this about? What do they symbolize? All of these sorts of things. He didn't get all of that cognitive knowledge. And I think, and I think he thought, that that cognitive knowledge may actually have gotten in the way of the intimate personal experience that he, in the end, did have. So some people feel uncomfortable with the ritual they don't want to follow it like a sheep one of my uh, participants diane said that you know i'm not going to follow a ritual like a sheep and that <laughs> goes back to our uh our individualism in north america right um but i think because of that perhaps diane was not going to become as willing to just participate just like both feet in and, and, and participate and get that intimate experience, which is fine. She was certainly getting what she wanted out of it, and she was very happy with her participation at these, oh. these centers. Um, but it was very interesting to me to see what, to hear what Gerald had said about his experiences with this water offering and how it had changed his commitment and his, his, just the way he identified himself with the center. It's fascinating. The power of ritual. <laughs> yeah. And of course, as a ritual scholar, I'm going to nail one on that, right? <laughs> That's what I want to say. <laughs> so, yes, of course. But um, it, it, it's, it's interesting that some people will say, well, no, when it comes to meditation, I don't want to know anything intellectually. I just want to practice. But when it comes to something like a puja, uh, an empowerment, Something like that. It's like, I want to know what we're saying. I don't want to know. I don't want to chant in Tibetan unless I know what the words are. I want to know what this ritual is about. Who is this Bodhisattva of compassion that we're chanting to? Um, so these more strongly ritualized things or the things that they identify as strictly ritual, many people wanted to get 
more in information about them before they participated. Meditation, on the other hand, which of course we've, we've established as virtual, but many of my respondents didn't, um, they were cool with just, okay, I just want to sit. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to read too much. I just want to sit and see what happens and get the experience. So it's interesting that there's that distinction between what is too ritualized for some people and, uh, you know, then they need the cognitive understanding in order to make it accessible and then the, the meditation which they can see is less ritualized and they can just allow themselves the personal experience so it, it was really fascinating <laughs> just to see their their uh, their their opinions on these sorts of things yeah. yeah it's great it's great fascinating stuff thank you so much for uh, really i mean thank you so much for doing the doing the the legwork <laughs> As as somebody who's who's interested in both ritual studies and Buddhism in uh, North America, uh, seeing these kinds of ethnographic surveys is, is uh, refreshing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I enjoy it. There haven't been a lot, um, so it was it was nice to be able to do this and collect this data, you know, just to talk to people about their experiences and put their put their thoughts out there. So I think it was important to uh, to collect that information from from people. Yeah, it's great stuff. Uh, so, so we're 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 getting near on to the um, the end of our, our time together. Um, so we're gonna get to the, the final traditional question, which is, um, you know, your your book here is from your dissertation, and so I assume you have moved on to other projects. And so, uh, what else are we working on? Well, um, I have a, a proposed project in the works. I have uh, made a proposal to uh, for a postdoctoral research project. Um, and that will be looking, uh, again, at performance and ritual. What I'm interested in, the, in this time, and it is a bit of a departure, although it will build on something, some things from this book. I'm interested in looking at what I'm calling transformative performance. So the performance of ritual, but also theater, that is meant to be socially engaged. So um, rituals that have political, environmental, or social uh, goals uh, or theatrical performances that have ritual or social uh, or, or sorry environmental or political or social uh, goals. So for, for for changing society and the world for the better, um, I'm interested in looking at ritual and theater because of my interest and background in performance theory, which talks about intersections between theater and ritual and other kinds of cultural performance. So the argument is that tech um, traditionally, ritual is more transformative, whereas theater is more transportative. So it just sort of entertains for a while, whereas ritual, ritual tends to be more efficacious. I'm looking at where those uh, transformative or efficacious um, qualities intersect in ritual and theater. So I, I will be continuing studying some uh, some Buddhism. So it will be uh, hopefully Buddhist rituals that, that are environmentally engaged or socially or politically engaged. But I'll also be looking at more secular rituals as well, perhaps even social protests oh, and that sort of thing. I haven't actually started much on this study because I've been so busy. We've been, I've been doing a whole bunch of other things. I've actually had some teaching, which is great. Um, so hopefully this project will come through and I'll be able to start on that soon. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm really excited. I, hope, I really hope I can, I can manage to do it through the postdoc program. So. Well, great. Best of luck to all of that. And uh, thank you again for, for joining us. Um, 
much for your time. Uh, and, and I highly recommend everyone go out and, and purchase your book. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> so thanks again. Take care. All the best. You've been listening to an interview with Patricia Campbell, author of Knowing Body, Moving Mind, Ritualizing and Learning at Two Buddhist Centers on the New Books in Buddhist Studies show. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.